0: If you have a Bible, take it out and find Luke chapter 15. There is an outline in the bulletin you can follow along. We have two more weeks left in our summer series looking at parables. After Labor Day, we're going to jump into an eight-week series called Little G Gods. And my guess is, my hunch is that most of you in the room have never once bowed down to a golden cow statue. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say most of you haven't done that. I'm also going to go out on a limb. It's really not going out on a limb at all. I'm just going to say all of us at one point or another in our lives have made another person or another thing or an idea other than God more important than God. We put something in God's place, which is the essence and the heart of idolatry. And in this eight-week series coming up, we're going to talk about what are some of the common things that you and I put in God's place. We may not be tempted to put a golden cow statue in God's place like Israel was. But there's other things that we do put in His place or that we are tempted to put in His place. And we're going to talk about some of those things in September and October. First, we have to finish up parables. And we're going to look at two of my favorites. This morning, we're looking at the parable of the lost sons, and next week we're going to look at the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Now some of you are looking at Luke 15 and you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is not the parable of the lost sons, this is the parable of the prodigal son. It says it right here in my Bible, there's a little heading. It says parable of the prodigal son, and I've heard it, and we've talked about it in Sunday school when I was growing up. Why did he rename this parable the parable of the lost sons? you understand that the little headings in your Bible or in my Bible weren't put there by Matthew or Mark or Luke or Isaiah or anybody else. They're put there by editors just to sort of help you make your way through the text and to give shape to the text. This is one of those times in my life where I wish I had one of those little gadgets from Men in Black. Do you remember the Men in Black movie? I don't remember anything about the movie except the little gadget and... Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, they pull out the little, you know, the pencil stick thing and it's got a little light on the end. And whoever just saw an alien, they hold the stick up and they push the little button and the thing goes off and you forget whatever you just saw. You totally don't remember anything that was in your memory. And I wish that we could just open to Luke 15 and I can say, okay, parable of the prodigal son, and then hit the little button and you would just forget. And I would just forget that we think this is called the parable of the prodigal son because when we call what we're about to read in Luke 15, when we call it the parable of the prodigal son, we make it out right from the get-go to be about one of the sons. Jesus didn't tell a parable here about a man who had one son. He told a story about a man who had two sons. If you look what he says in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. If all that Jesus is trying to teach in Luke 15, is that you can run far away from God and then come back someday. He doesn't need the other son to tell that story. You could do it with just one son. He doesn't need to spend eight verses talking about the older brother. He doesn't need to end the parable with the unresolved tension and all the focus, not on the quote-unquote prodigal, but on the older brother. But Jesus knows what he's doing when he's telling this story, and he's telling us a story about two lost sons. So that's going to be our focus this morning. It is a remarkable story. I'll just start with a quote from J.C. Ryle. He's always a quotable guy. He wrote lots of different commentaries about the Bible, and he said, there is probably no chapter of the Bible that has done greater good to the souls of men. And he's talking about Luke 15. i I think he's on to something here. I don't know that you would say it's done more good to the souls of men than any other chapter in the Bible. But my guess is at the very beginning of this series, if I said, we're going to do a series on parables, tell me the first parable that comes to mind. Maybe you would say the Good Samaritan. Maybe you have another one that you just particularly like. But this would be one that would come to your mind quick and everyone would sort of be able to say, oh yeah, the parable of the prodigal son, the guy who ran away and ruined his life and then he came back, that's a great one. And from a literary standpoint, it's a masterpiece. There's enough detail in the story to sort of help you understand what's really going on, but there's also enough unanswered questions, a lack of detail that sort of makes you think and makes you curious And as you read the story, you can't help but find yourself relating and putting yourself in the shoes of the younger brother and then the older brother and then even the father and thinking, what would I I do in a situation like this? How would I handle something like this? It fits well with our definition of parables. We've talked about this every week. Parables are stories taken from real life from which moral or spiritual truths Are drawn. There's nothing fantastic about this story. There's no talking animals. There's no, you know, sort of crazy things going on. It's just a straightforward story about a man who had two sons and one ran away and one stayed home and how did they work it all out in the end. It's something that all of us can relate to on one level or another. So it's an everyday story from real life. Jesus is teaching spiritual truths. It's also part of a trilogy, trilogy, which sort of makes it unique among Jesus's parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost sons, they all go together. They're all sort of driving at the same basic idea just from different directions. And the context is important. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but you need to know that Jesus told these three parables because the religious establishment was upset with Jesus. They weren't happy with Jesus. And if you just look At the beginning of the chapter, Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, this is what you read. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They're grumbling, the religious establishment, because when the riffraff of society, the lowest of the low... Come to seek out Jesus, to find Jesus. Jesus doesn't hold them at arm's length. Jesus embraces them and he shares the gospel with them and he calls them to repentance and he has fellowship with them. And these religious establishment guys, they're just outraged. They think that these people are untouchable, that they're beyond the pale, that they shouldn't deserve a second chance or a third chance or whatever chance they're on. And they expect Jesus to just hold them at arm's length and he doesn't do that. He welcomes them, and he eats with them, and he has fellowship with them, and they're grumbling. And I don't want you to miss that as Jesus is telling these three parables, each one is like a stiff jab to the Pharisees. Because in each one, he sets it up so that the hero of the parable is someone that they would have looked down upon. Someone that they would have seen as second class or unworthy. And Jesus is doing it on purpose. The first parable he tells is about a shepherd, somebody that they thought was of no value, and Jesus makes him the hero of the story. And in the second parable, he talks about a woman who, again, these men thought were second class, and he makes her the hero of the story. And in the third parable, he describes a father who, from their perspective, has absolutely no backbone. No guts. He's a total pushover. And Jesus lifts him up and makes him the hero of the story. It's kind of like if you were here when we talked about the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus makes the bad guy the hero. And he's like trying to shake spiritual sense into these guys. He's trying to shock the truth into them. And he's saying to them, look, this shepherd is the hero. And this woman is the hero. And this seemingly spineless father is the hero. And he's trying to get their attention and change the way they think about him in the way they think about grace. For many of you, this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways. If you endured the entire sermon series through the Gospel of Luke, these parables fit with the theme verse of Luke's Gospel, Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Luke, in writing this Gospel, he's got this theme idea that flavors the entire book, that Jesus came to seek us and to save us, And the most memorable passage for most of us when we walk away from Luke, maybe on our own isn't Luke 19.10, but it probably is Luke 15. This shepherd going to seek one that was lost. This woman looking and searching for something that was lost. This father looking and searching for his sons who were lost. Here's the big idea, really simple. There's two ways to be lost and there's one way to be saved. Two ways to be lost, we're going to read about them, and there's one way to be saved. We'll talk about that. So you follow along. We're just going to read the parable. I know it's familiar to you, but just track with me as we read Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field To feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear this familiar story. Help us to understand what Jesus is saying to these men who are grumbling against him. Help us to see why it matters to us and how it applies to us. Father, we pray that your spirit would press these truths home to our heart, that we would heed the warnings, and that we would hope in the grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just to start and to make sure we're all on the same page, let's talk about Hebrew culture and basic inheritance laws. In ancient Israel, things were not a whole lot different than our society. If you wanted to inherit what your parents had, something had to die first. Your parents. They had to be gone. They had to be out of the way. They had to kick the bucket, push up daisies, buy the farm, whatever you want to call it. They had to be gone. And in our day, it would be highly inappropriate, highly offensive, highly disrespectful to go to your living parents and to basically say to them, hey, since you're not dead yet, can I just have all your stuff? Can I have my cut of all your money? Your parents would hear that and they would understand that you don't love them. You don't have a concern for your relationship. You just care about stuff and you just care about money. And it would be a terrible breach in the relationship. The same thing is true in ancient Israel. When this son goes to his father and he says, Give me the part of the inheritance, the part of the estate that is coming to me, in essence, what he's saying is, I wish you would hurry up and die. Because you are in the way of something that's going to make me happy. Knowing you and having a relationship with my father won't make me happy, but having all your stuff and none of your rules will make me happy. So it's highly offensive, highly disrespectful. One thing that's a little bit different in ancient Israelite culture than our culture is that if there were only two sons, the older son would get a double share, which means in this case he would get two-thirds. The older son son always got a double share, so you took however many sons there were, you added one more for the older one, you did the math, and you gave the oldest double. And so if there was two, the younger brother was entitled to a third of the money, and the older brother was entitled to two-thirds of the money. And Luke says in the text, or Jesus says in this parable, that when the younger son comes and says, give me my cut, he says the father divided his inheritance, his estate, his money, his wealth between them. Which means, okay, if you want your third, that means everything else is your older brothers. If I'm giving you yours now and you're going to take it, everything that remains is your older brothers. And so Jesus says he divides the money between them. To make sense of this parable, I think it's helpful to look at it from the perspective of each of the major characters. And so we're just going to walk through the three characters and think about truth from their perspective. So let's talk about the younger son. Just a few thoughts about this younger son. Number one, his sin began in his heart. And I'm just going to confess to you up front, I don't have a verse for that. I can't point to you in the parable and show you this is the place where Jesus says his sin begins in his heart. But you know people and I know people. And if the relationship between this father and this son was right... I just don't see him waking up one day saying out of the blue, I wish my father was dead and I wish I could have all his stuff. In fact, I'm going to go ask him if he'd go ahead and drop dead and I could go ahead and have all his stuff. That sort of stuff doesn't just come out of the blue. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. I think what we're to understand when Jesus describes this younger son going to his father is that as he's been working with, working for his father, the wheels have been turning. And the wheels in his head, or you could say the wheels in his heart, have been telling him, you will be happy when you get rid of the constraints and the rules and you have access to unlimited resources. If you just had the money to do what you really wanted to do and your dad wasn't in the way to stop you, then you would be happy. And he spends day after day, week after week, month after month, Thinking about this, mulling it over, longing, daydreaming, wishing, hoping. And every morning his dad wakes up and he's alive. And he's disappointed. And he goes out into the field and his mind is turning and he's saying, well maybe tomorrow's the day because if if things would just change, then I would be happy. That's how the human heart works. That's true for the younger son and it's true for me and it's true for you. And the takeaway is things may look good on the outside of your life, but you'd better be really careful what's going on in your heart. You'd better be very careful what you allow yourself to daydream about and to fantasize about and to hope for and to long for and to dream for. you better be very careful that you don't give your heart over to sin and then wake up one day and see that it's led you down a path you never thought you would go. His sin begins in his heart. Secondly, he lives for the moment. He lives for the moment. He wants to maximize pleasure in the short run and he has no plan in the long run. You can imagine the father making the division between the sons and hiving off a third of what he had worked his entire life to accumulate. Maybe a third of what he had inherited from his father and from his grandfather would have been passed down in the family and then just to hive it off and in a moment see it all walk away. He's got no perspective on the past and he definitely has no perspective on the future. I mean, a third of this estate might have been a lot of money, but did he really think he would never run out? Did he really think when he made it to this foreign country that all of these people that were hanging out with him actually cared about him and were his friends? Like, from our perspective, you look at it and you say, how foolish can you be? That money wasn't going to last forever. Those people really didn't care about you. But his heart's led him down a road he never thought he would go. Be very careful that you don't live for the moment and forget about eternity. That's where Jesus said it like this. He said, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world, but in the process you forfeit your soul? That's not profit. It's loss. Is the click on that site, on that video, really worth losing your family? A click, is it worth it? In this room, it's easy to say no. But when you leave this room, you start to think, about the moment is that person or that thing in your life that's out there that you think if you just had it you would be happy and content and everything would be right is it worth a trillion years in the kingdom of God is that a fair trade an even trade well in this room you say no it's not worth it but you leave this room and you're just like me and you're just like this younger son you're prone to think about the moment and not eternity and all he can think about is, I want that money now, and I want to maximize my fun and my pleasure and my enjoyment now. And he has no thought for the future. Number three, not surprisingly, sin destroyed him. Sin always destroys people. When you give yourself over to sin, it will destroy you. And the picture of this younger brother, when he comes to the end of his rope, is pitiful. He's all alone alone. Far from home. He has absolutely nothing. Longing to eat what the pigs are eating. And Jesus says no one gives him anything. He's gone down a road in life that he never would have thought he'd travel. It's destroying. I promise you. As much as you think you can control sin and you can keep it small and you can manage it and you can put up boundaries and say, well, I'm going to go this far but not that far or this is not that big of a deal because other people are doing worse things, if you give yourself over to sin unrepentantly, it will destroy you. And it may or may not be as dramatic as what we read here, but it will win in the end. Sin will destroy you. This is old news. This is nothing new. This is not something that Jesus was making up. This is Old Testament wisdom. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. The author of the proverb is saying there's something inherent in sin that's going to destroy you. It's not going to make you happy or bring you pleasure or fulfillment. It's going to turn on you and overthrow you. Later in the same chapter, good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. The way of the treacherous is their ruin. The last thing, and it's good to end on a positive note, we can say about the younger brother, his repentance was genuine. His repentance was genuine. The text says he came to his senses, or in the ESV, he came to. To himself, And it's sort of the idea that the light bulb goes off, right? Like he's down in the mud and finally he gets it. If you've read the other two parables and you can go back and look at them on your own, you sort of piece things together and you realize it was more than just his common sense going off. It was God seeking him in the lowest moment of his life. It was God going to him when he was absolutely desperate and broken. It's this picture of the shepherd leaving the sheep to find the one that's lost. It's this picture of this woman turning her house upside down, doing whatever it takes to find this lost coin. God finds him, and he comes to his senses, and he basically comes up with a game plan. He comes up with a a rehearsed apology. And you got to be honest, it's a good apology, Right? It's not one of those apologies you see on TV all the time today when somebody gets caught doing something or they say something they shouldn't have said and they sort of get pressured into giving an apology and so they get there with the cameras and the microphone and they say something like, well, I'm, I'm sorry I offended people. Well, I'm sorry you took it that way. Well, I'm sorry all of this happened. He comes to his father and the plan is basically to say, I don't even belong in this family anymore I get that I have sinned first against heaven it's the Jewish way of respectfully saying I've sinned against God and I have sinned against you my father and you don't owe me a thing you can turn me out and that's what I deserve but what I'm asking is can I be one of your servants and can I just work for my food His repentance is genuine. He's not making excuses for his sin. He's not justifying his sin. He's not blaming his father or his brother for his sin. He's owning it. This is what true repentance looks like. It's a change of mind that leads to a change in life. He looks at the one thing seeking pleasure that used to drive him, and his mind is changed. And he says, That was wickedness against heaven and wickedness against my father, and I deserve to be cast out of the family. And his life is changed because his mind is changed and his heart is changed. His repentance is genuine. So that's the younger brother. Then there's the older brother, the one that we sometimes leave off when we think about the parable of the quote-unquote prodigal son. Let's talk about the older son. Just like his brother, his sin began in his heart. And again, I'm going to admit to you and confess, I don't have a specific verse to show you. But I just think I know enough about people and I think you know enough about people to say, this is how people are. He stands there on the day that his younger brother comes and asks for his third. And he fully expects his father to deck the younger son in the face. Like he's ready for it to happen. He's saying, I've been waiting for this all my life. You're about to get it. And instead, he gives him his third. And he looks at that, and it changes the way he thinks about his father. He sees him as spineless, maybe cowardly, maybe a pushover. And you know from what he says when he comes to this party late and he's talking to this other servant and they say, your brother who's in this far country, he's come back. And you listen to the the older son talk with his dad outside the party. You know what's been going on in his brain all these weeks, months, years, however long it's been. This is what's been going on in his brain. I'm stuck here working on the farm and he's having fun. I'm stuck here slaving away for our taskmaster father doing the right thing and he's out living it up. And the whole time, even though he hasn't sort of been as audacious as his brother, all he's wishing is that he could have been doing all the things that his brother was doing. He's out having all the fun while I stay back here and slave away. And he's brewed on it. And he's become bitter and it's eaten him up. And when he finally comes to this party, he refuses to go in. Now, be honest for just a minute, okay? Don't you kind of feel for him? Like he's out in the field working. No one invites him to the party, they just let him finish whatever he's doing. He'll come in eventually. Maybe they just didn't even think about him, they were too excited. They start the party without him. And he hears the music as he's coming home. He's tired. He's dirty. He stinks. And he hears the party going on, and he calls someone out, and he says, what? I didn't know about a party tonight. What are you guys doing throwing a party? And they tell him, your brother's come home. He was lost, and he's found. He's back. And he refuses to go in. And the father comes out, and he still refuses to go in. He will have nothing to do with it. And this little outburst he gives to his dad, listen, it's more than just, I didn't get to kick off work early today and come to the party. It's all about the weeks and the months and the years that he spent working out in the field while his brother had all the so-called fun. So his sin begins in his heart. Secondly, he lived for money. He lived for money. I know you criticize the younger brother because he had the guts or the audacity to go to his dad and wish him dead and ask for his cut, but the older brother lives for the exact same thing. He's just willing to play the long game. He's willing to do what's respectable in the eyes of his community, but the end game is he wants his money, and he's a little bit ticked off that his dad haven't, hasn't given him a bonus every now and then hasn't thrown him a party every now and then. Like the one who wasted all your stuff, now you're going to give him your stuff? You didn't give me any stuff. And here's the great irony of it the father looks at the son and he says, Son, everything that's mine is yours. There's nothing left to give to the brother, he took his third. We're not going to divide the remaining two-thirds and do the math again. Everything that's mine is yours, which you know infuriated him. Because then he puts two and two together and he says, Oh, so that goat that you killed for my brother is my goat. You're spending my money on your son. He lives for money. He thinks that money will make him happy. And number three, he's blinded by sin. Sin blinded him. Look at how he talks about his father, verse 29. He, look, he answered his father and he said, look, these many years I have served you. What he says is you've been the slave master and I've been the slave all these years. You can imagine as a father how that would break your heart to look back on all the time you spent with your son and to see that he only thought about you not as his father, but as his master. I've served you. I've slaved for you all these years. He's blind. Look look how he thinks about his brother. Verse 30. This son of yours has come home. He won't call him his brother. He's long since disowned him. But he knows he's still his father's son. He fails to see the relationship he has with his brother. And maybe the biggest blind spot in his life is in verse 29. If you just back up again, he has the nerve to say to his father, I never disobeyed your command. Parents, can you imagine one of your grown children coming and saying that to your face? I never disobeyed anything that you told me to do. If it weren't so offensive and ridiculous, it might be laughable. He's blind. He's blind to the ugliness of his own sin as he stands outside this party pouting and refusing to go in. He's blind to the defiance that he's showing to his father. His father goes out to entreat him, to beg him to come into the party. Please come in and have Have fun with us. Join the celebration. I'm begging you to come in. And all he can do is stand with his arms folded in defiance. And he refuses to go in. He's blind. Lastly, he's just as lost as his brother. Just as lost as his brother. Make no mistake, his GPS coordinates were right. Geographically, he's on the the right piece of real estate but his heart is a million miles away. Has never been with the Father. This is Jesus showing us there's two ways for you to be lost. The first way is for you to run as hard and as fast away from God as you can and to do anything and everything other than what God tells you to do. That's one way to be lost. The second way to be lost is to have the appearance of being close to God, is to put on a good show for your friends and your family and everyone at church, but inside for your heart to be a million miles from God. Bitter towards God, angry with God, dissatisfied with God, wishing and dreaming and longing for all of the things that those people are doing, thinking that's where the fun is but staying outwardly and looking like you're playing the part. And Jesus starts off in Luke 15, verse 11, and he says, there was a man who had two sons. Because he's trying to say, he's trying to show to the people who are grumbling about him, it's true that the tax collectors and the prostitutes and all these wicked people that you look down upon, they're lost no question about it. They have run hard and fast away from God. But what you failed to see is that you are just as lost. And you look good on the outside. The cup is clean on the outside, but on the inside, it's filthy. You're like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You look like you're close to God, but your heart is a million miles away from him. Two ways to be lost. And when you read it in the parable, one is not more lost than the other one. One is not more shameful than the other one. Both of the sons are lost. Then there's the father. Two lessons from the father. Number one, he was eager to forgive. Jesus says he saw his son while he was still a long ways off. And it may be reading into it a little bit, but you almost get the idea that this father has sat on the front porch. He stood outside the house every night after he worked on the farm, and he just fixed his eyes on the horizon for the road that his son traveled many, many years ago. And he sat there every single night. He's prayed for his son. He's thought about his son, and he's just waited and hoped for his return. And he does return, and he sees him when he's a long ways off. And he does something that no self respecting Jewish man would do. He picks up his robe and he runs. To us, that seems like a, an obvious detail. But in ancient Israel, grown Jewish men did not run, period. He runs to his son who is stinky and smelly and filthy and dirty from working in the pigsty and traveling back home with nothing and he just runs up to him and embraces him and kisses him. The father makes a complete fool of himself in front of everyone. He doesn't lecture the son. He doesn't wait for him to come with his tail between his leg all the way up to the house with a big bony finger pointing in his face. He doesn't even let him finish his I'm sorry speech. Did you notice that? The son prepared a, a, a several lines of what he was going to say. He gets through just a couple of them, and the father cuts him off, and he says, that's enough. Let's have a party. I've heard enough. He's eager to forgive. And you see the same thing true with the older brother. Look, in a shame and honor society, when the father throws a feast, and the older brother stands outside pouting with his arms crossed, and refuses to go into the party, the father had every right and everyone there had every expectation that he would walk out of that party, walk up to his younger son, and slap him right across the face. Like grab him by the ear, twist it as hard as he can, and drag him into the party. You're coming to the party. And instead he goes out and he entreats his son, please come to the party. Even though he shamed him and humiliated him and embarrassed him, he's begging his son to join the party and to be part of the celebration. He's eager to forgive. And this flows right out of what we just said. He graciously invites both sons to the father. Excuse me, to the party. He graciously invites both sons to the party. This is, to me, the best part of the parable, right? And maybe it's just ironically the best part in a culture where we call it the parable of the prodigal son, But when you get to the end, you realize it's not so much the younger son that's the prodigal, it's the father that's the prodigal. Most of us don't use the word prodigal at all, only when we're talking about this story. But here's the definition of prodigal. Spending money or resources freely and recklessly. The text says that the younger brother was reckless in his living. Wastefully extravagant, giving something on a lavish scale. You look at that definition, and you can see why we call it the parable of the prodigal son. It's because this younger son took his third, and he lived recklessly. But you get to the end of it, and you realize the true prodigal in the parable is not the younger son. It's the father who takes something that is so costly, forgiveness, and he gives it freely to both of his sons. He offers it without limit. He offers it even as they stand in His face defiantly, asking for their third or refusing to enter the party. He's reckless in giving out grace and forgiveness. It's the gospel. You understand that the holy God, the God that is holy, 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 has every right to shut us out of His kingdom, to kick us out of His family, to exclude us from a relationship with Him, to leave us wallowing in the filth of the pigsty of what we thought would make us happy. That would be justice and that would be fair. It would be right. But He's extravagant and He's reckless and He's lavish in His forgiveness. And He seeks us. It's like a shepherd Jesus says that leaves the flock to go and to find the one that's lost he seeks us like a woman who's lost a coin and she turns her house upside down to find what's lost because it's valuable to her luke 19:10 the son of man came to seek and to save the lost that's us He lived for us and he died for us so that he could extend forgiveness and grace and mercy to us even though it's the exact opposite of what we deserve from him. This is the gospel that the holy God who owes us judgment seeks us out. You see the two ways to be lost. And Jesus is saying to these men who are grumbling, there's only one way to be saved. And this is it. Turning from sin and trusting in Jesus is the only way to be saved. And you may be like the younger son. You may be somebody who has run hard and fast as far away from God as you can. And what Jesus is saying to you is you've got to stop and you've got to turn. And you've got to trust that the Son of Man came to seek you and to save you. That he died for you. You may be like the older son. You may have the right location. You may have all the right externals. You may be going through the religious motions, but your heart may be a million miles from God. And Jesus is saying to you, You've got to stop. You've got to quit the game. You've got to turn from that and repent of it. And you have got to trust in me and trust in what I've done for you. And you may be here this morning and you may say, I'm doing that. I am turning from sin. I'm fighting it daily, and I'm trusting in Jesus for my salvation. I'm doing that. And to you, I say, praise God that you have been found. Not that you figured it out, but that God found you, that the Son of Man came to seek you and to save you, that you had a moment where you came to your senses because God came to you in your desperation. Just like we read from 2 Corinthians 4, that when your eyes were veiled to the gospel, to the truth of who God is and what he's done for you, that the same God who spoke light into darkness spoke light into your heart so that you could see the truth of who God is and what he's done on your behalf. There's two ways to be lost. There's one way to be saved. My prayer is that you can recognize lostness in your life and that you look to Jesus for salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word. We are grateful for the parables of Jesus, for the stories he told, the simple, everyday stories that he told that teach us such powerful truths. Father, we pray for ears to hear this story and to hear the warnings in it. Father, for those who are Actively seeking pleasure and life and fulfillment apart from you, I pray that they would come to their senses today. And Father, for those who look like they're close to you, but their hearts are far from you, I pray that they would come to their senses today. That they would not remain outside the celebration. That they would humble themselves and that they would accept your grace. Father, for those of us who are turning from sin and trusting in Jesus we just stop to thank you that you came to seek us and to save us that you sent Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves that you sent your spirit to give us life when we were dead Father as your people this morning we want to respond and we want to praise you for who you are you are the holy, holy holy God and you are our savior And you are worthy of all of our praise. So we we pray that as we sing one last song that you would be honored and glorified in the singing. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.